0: It's good to be here again. Uh, we want to say before we begin that we recognize there's a great number of visitors who've come to be here with us and, and join us in this meeting, and uh, we want to say that you're our honored guest. We're glad that you're here, and we hope that you're blessed by tonight. Uh, again, wonderful singing. Uh, I get excited when we, when we sing together. What a great song we just sang to remind us of of the blessings that we enjoy if we're part of God's family. Uh, Thank you for leading that song, and, and thank you for all of the prayers and everything else that's going along with the work this week. I want to talk tonight about some things that will build upon the foundation that we set last evening. And we may have a little bit of repetition from last night. I hope that's not tedious for you, but that will help you as we build these layers. There won't be a lot of repetition uh, but we're going to stay in the same lane, if you will. And tonight, uh, we're going to talk about a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul uses this phrase, He made him to be sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, when you really consider this phrase, he made him, that's Jesus, God's, God Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin. That's a little peculiar, isn't it? It's somewhat of a strange statement. But simply it being strange, we also need to recognize this is one of the most powerful truths when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to explore this idea tonight from the Scripture. And as we look at that, we're going to have to define a lot of terms. And so, uh, again, I hope that's not tedious as well. I hope it all helps us in our understanding of what Paul means when he talks about Jesus being made sin. Romans chapter 4 and verse 6 says this. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness, apart from works... Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now for us to understand what it means when it says that God made Jesus to be sin, there's something we need to understand from this verse, and it is the word impute. Paul uses this term Over and over and over in the book of Romans. Uh, It's used in other places as well. Typically in the other verses, uh, it it is used in a sense of reckoning someone as something. and, And it's used when it talks about Jesus being numbered or reckoned among the transgressors. Talking about his death. But in this particular instance, this word means to reckon or to count, to compute, to calculate, to take into account metaphorically it means to pass to one's account now i just used a lot of definitions a lot of words so i want to slow down for a moment impute righteousness means this i see something and i esteem it as such it doesn't mean that it really is but i'm counting it as such i'm considering it as such and god imputes to us righteousness he counts us righteous and he also says this in verse 8 blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin well what is righteousness and what is sin and so I want to talk about righteousness for a few moments and I I think this will help us understand even to a greater deal why Jesus had to be made sin And, and we'll talk about what that means more in detail What does righteousness mean? And and we use that word in different ways. The Bible uses it in different ways. Sometimes uh, it's talking about God's righteousness as God is righteous. Sometimes it, it means justice. We might use the word to say something is just or righteous. Sometimes it just means that something is right. But when we're talking about us, and we're talking about God imputing righteousness to us, notice that David defines what righteousness means. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. When we're talking about God making someone righteous, we're not talking about God giving us a level of goodness. And I think that's a great misunderstanding that we have. And I think it's also a misunderstanding that a lot of people have because they grow up sitting in a church pew and they get to the point where they obey the gospel and they feel like, well, I was really already good and God just made me better. And that's not what that means either. And so to understand truly the concept of God making us righteous, we must establish some facts. And here's fact number one. There is none righteous. There's none righteous you know we read that sometimes there's none righteous well except the saints now understand that's not the context of this this is what paul's literally saying there is none zero zip zilch no one's righteous none of us are truly righteous none of us are truly good there's none not one that's pretty simple that's pretty simple But we protest that. We say, I I don't know about that. I I know some righteous people. I know some good people. Notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 18. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, understand, there's a subjective way that we use the term good. and, And even the Bible uses this at times. Like when it talks about Cornelius in Acts 10, it says he was a good man. Right? He was a good man. But when we talk about good, truly good, truly righteous, here's what Jesus says. There is no one good except God. Now, I don't think Jesus is denying he's good. He's trying to help this man understand that he is God. But this man says, good master. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. And the reason why we sometimes look around and we think we're a good person or someone else is a good person because we're really not reflecting on the word good In regard to God but this is what Isaiah says we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags you know we read that word filthy rags and sometimes we probably think dirty something is dirty it actually means a soiled garment that's disgusting right a soiled garment it's useless it's an abomination It actually refers to something back in the old law. You can do your own word study when you get home on that word filthy when it talks about filthy rags. Go study that word. What you're going to find out is it's relating to something in the law that when a rag became soiled, they took it outside the city and they burned it. That's our righteousness. You know what we do? Could you imagine, guys, if you were to take a soiled rag... A soiled garment, put it in a box, wrap it up with wrapping paper, put a bow on it, and give that to your wife. How'd that go? But yet we stand before God and we present to Him our righteousness and we think He'll be pleased with that? See, God knows truly what our righteousness is. We're not good, we're not righteous, and the problem is we often compare ourselves to the wrong standard. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 here, Paul says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by another, by one another, and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. See, this is our problem. See, if I compare myself to somebody that's in prison for some heinous crime, I might go, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good guy, Right? I mean, I'm not out dealing drugs. (laughs) I'm not out hurting people. I'm not out mugging people. I'm a good guy. Are we, though? He says, when you compare yourselves among yourselves, that's not the standard. But you know what happens when we compare ourselves to the true standard? See, God is good by nature. He's good by nature. There's nothing that's not good about God. He's the origin of everything that is good. God is perfect in His justice. He's perfect. God is free from all unrighteousness. And we could summarize that by just saying this God is holy. And when it says God is righteous, God is good, that's what it means. God is holy, he is sacred, he is separate from everything that is worldly, everything that is carnal, everything that is sinful. God is separate. You know what happens when man stands in the face of righteous God? Job was arguably, and I think very uh, convincingly so, the most righteous person on the face of the earth at that time I mean the description God gives him is he's a perfect man he's upright he avoids evil he fears God but you know what happened when God or when Job rather finally got a face-to-face if you will with God Job said I abhor myself and repent Now they were accusing him of a lot of things and Job was defending himself saying, Guys, I didn't do this. In fact, I'm a righteous person. But once he looked at God, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, wherefore I abhor myself and repent. When Isaiah the prophet was given a vision, a vision of God's glory, he looked at that and he said, Woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people who are unclean. When we compare ourselves to the right standard, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us is righteous. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I want us to go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. And as we think about righteousness, we think about sin and we think about those things being imputed. I want to go back to the beginning to help us understand what it means that sin is imputed or counted against someone. So, in the beginning, God had told Adam and Eve, told Adam rather, dress and keep the garden. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the fruit, or of the tree rather, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I've heard of a fruit tree, a peach tree, a pecan tree, an oak tree. It's interesting, the name of this tree. Have you ever thought about that? God gave this tree a name, and the name of this tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting identification for a tree. Why do he call it that? Well, hold on to that thought. But look at the second thought. He says, if you do eat that tree, in the day that you eat that tree, you shall surely die. That's pretty simple. You can eat every tree, just don't eat that one. Because when you do, in the day you do, you will die. A villain is introduced in Genesis 3, a serpent that we know is Satan. Satan. And he says to the woman, has God said, has God said, (laughs) he's tricky, has God said you shall not eat of every tree? See, he's playing a trick here. Oh, no, no, we, we can eat of the trees of the garden, she says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And what does Satan say? You will not surely die. Did they die? Yes, they did. They died that day. You say, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. Adam lived to be over 900 years old. They did not die that day. Yes, they did. They died that day. I want you to see what happened when they ate the fruit. It says, then the eyes of them both were were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Here's another peculiar phrase. The eyes of them both were open. Do you think that he's indicating here that Adam and Eve walked around like this until they ate the fruit? Obviously that is not literal, right? That's, that's explaining this situation. The eyes, what was open about their eyes? The eyes of their understanding. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does it mean their eyes were open? Now they knew. And what did they know? They knew... They were naked. Do you think they didn't know they were, weren't wearing clothes? What does it mean they knew they were naked? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, it says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. You know, we have to teach our kids that, don't we? That It's not okay to just run around naked. And <laughs> If you don't teach them that, they will. <laughs> they didn't know that. They didn't know it was shameful. They didn't know that them being exposed was something to be ashamed of. But they ate of the fruit of the tree and now they know. Why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did it have some magical power that gave them some mystical knowledge? No. They did what God said not to do. And it activated, if you will, their conscience. And now they knew. They knew good. They knew evil. And how did they react? They tried to cover it up. They sewed fig leaves. I don't know where they learned to sew, by the way, but they they were apparently very resourceful. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons, which means a lower covering. But that wasn't good enough. wasn't good enough. Do you see what happened here? The knowledge of good and evil rose up And it killed them. You say, Ian, I still don't know what you mean. It killed them. Well, let's go to Romans chapter 7. Because Paul is going to explain this in a way that I believe we can understand what happened that day, where Paul says, I was once alive. Do you see that? Now, do you think Paul is dead, literally, physically dead as he's writing the book of Romans? No. So obviously he's talking about spiritual, alive, spiritual death. I was once alive apart or separate from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life. And I died. This is so important. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. What does he mean apart from the law? He means I didn't know the law. I didn't know the commandment. Go back and read Romans 7. You'll see over and over. He says, For I had not known lust except the law had said. It's all about knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Paul says, Before I knew the law, I was alive. But once I knew the law, what happened? Sin came to life. Sin came to life. What does that mean? You know what kids do? They learn to talk. And then they learn to lie. I guess my son was probably two the first time I recall him lying when he had spilled something in the floor. And I said, Van, did you do that? Not this Van, my Van. Van, did you do that? No, sir. (laughs) I mean, it's just me and you, bud. (laughs) I didn't do it. Did you do it? is that a sin lying sure is do you think at that moment when my two-year-old told his first lie if that was his first lie it's just the first one i remember do you think that the first time that my two-year-old told a lie that god went guilty i don't and you don't either do you and the question is why that's a sin. Lying's a sin. Kids won't just lie, they'll steal, they'll covet, they'll act out in anger and wrath. Why is that okay? What's well, not okay? Right? And we teach them that's not okay. But does God impute their sin to them? No. You know why? Because sin's not alive. What gives sin life? What gives it its power to kill? The knowledge of God's law. Paul says, I was alive. See, some people will say, you're born dead, spiritually dead. That's not true. You're not born spiritually dead. Paul says, I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. But Paul, you're not dead. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying about children. You know what Jesus said about children? Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. God does not impute sin to a child. They don't understand. But see, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and there verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And when there is no law, sin is not imputed, it's not counted. But once we have that understanding, and it's different for every person, it's not a particular age that we reach, but it's a state of maturity, a state of understanding. Once we understand the law, what happens? Our eyes are open, just like Adam and Eve. And sin kills us. Going back to Romans 7, 8, notice... As we read these verses together. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It had no life. It had no power. He says, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived or came to life and I died. Verse 10. And the commandment, God's commandment, which was to bring to life... I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. The law did not kill him. The law was ordained to life. The law was for our good. What it did was strengthen the sin. You say, well, then how is the law not a bad thing? The law is good. God's standard is good. It's our rebellion against that standard that's bad. It's the sin that we commit that kills us. And once we come to that understanding, God counts our sin against us. He counts it. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. As Isaiah is explaining to Israel, as they're praying out about their captivity, about their hardship, Isaiah said, look, it's not that God can't hear you. It's not that he can't see what's going on. You just need to understand the reason why he is not hearing is because he's chosen not to hear. And he's hid his face from you. Because he's chosen to do that because your sins have separated you from God. This is spiritual death. This is spiritual death. See, when sin revives, when we commit sin, what happens? The entire dynamic of our relationship with God changes. It changes. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But after Adam committed the sin, you know what he did? He went and hid from God. He hid. He was afraid. He was ashamed. He was concerned. And God said, where are you? you Nor know he was? Hiding. He died that day, spiritually. Now, he brought physical death into the world because of his sin, but he died that day, just like Paul described when he said, sin revived, I died. I died. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You know, what, the reason why I'm really trying to explain this uh, so thoroughly is because I want you to understand the hopelessness of us ever being righteous. Paul didn't say, after I knew the law, I coveted. You know what he said? I'd already coveted. And then when the law came, I realized I've already coveted. And that's how life is. By the time we actually reach a stage of maturity where we can understand right and wrong, you know what the first thing we understand is? It's too late. I've already done it, I've already failed, I've already fallen short. We're not righteous. And if we still think we're righteous, I want you to notice this right here in the middle of this verse where he says, God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. We talked about secret sin last night. We talked about secret sin. What if you were standing up on the stage where I'm at right now and simultaneously every person in here knew every thought, every single thought that you'd ever had in your entire life. Would you then look at the crowd and say, aren't I a good person? I love y'all. I mean it. I love y'all. But if you knew everything I'd ever thought, I'd run out of this building, not walk, run out of this building. I'd get in my car and I'd drive home and I'd never show my face in Plainview, Texas again. Because I would not feel like a good person. I would be ashamed. I'd be humiliated. And we all would, wouldn't we? What if they knew everything we ever said? Just everybody in this room knew everything we ever said. Everything we ever did, when the doors were locked, when it was dark, when no one saw what we were doing, what if everybody knew those things? God does. He knows every one of them. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't hide your sin from God. You can't put on a facade to God and say, look at me, aren't I righteous? Aren't I good? No, he sees right through that. He sees right through it. Every secret thing God will bring into judgment because man is not righteous. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, as Paul describes what it is like, In a world without God. And that is exactly what he's describing. A a world where the Gentiles had changed the truth of God into a lie. They changed the image of the the incorruptible God into a corruptible image. They were worshiping idols. And this is what they were caught up in. Fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is sexual sin. It's any sexual sin that is outside of the holy bond of marriage. Fornication. Covetousness. You know, we've actually changed the meaning of the word covetousness in our society. In fact, I've even heard it preached and said, covetousness is when you desire something so much that you're willing to sin to get it. Where would we come up with that? So you're saying that the sin of covetousness depends on sin that comes from covetousness? You know what Jesus said? Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And then he told a story about a, a farmer who had a bumper crop. Is it a sin to farm, fellas? <laughs> Hope not. This would be the wrong crowd, right? Wasn't a sin to farm. Was it a sin to have a bumper crop? No. Was it a sin to build bigger barns? Hmm. What was his sin? Who did he sin against? Whose stuff was he coveting? He was just greedy. That's his problem, he was greedy. That's what covetousness, that's that's the root of covetousness, it's greed. Envy. How about this one? Deceit. How many people here tonight can say, I've never been deceitful? I never lied. I've never misrepresented the truth, not once in my life. What about whispering and backbiting? Where we talk evil about people behind their back. What about pride? Here's another one that's been redefined. All of a sudden, pride is a virtue. You know, these athletes, they go down, they make a hoop, what do they do? They make a layup and they beat their chests. And what do the kids do? Same thing. And people celebrate that. They celebrate a person boasting about all their accomplishments. Well, good for you. I'm glad you're, you know, there's six things that God hates. And he says there's seven are abomination. You know what the first one is? A proud look. A proud look. Ever been proud? Ever been prideful? What about disobedient to parents? Young people, he puts this in the exact same list that he puts murderers in. What about unmerciful? You say, well, what do you mean by that? You ever had somebody that sinned against you and you were unwilling to forgive them? Me too. You know what he says? You know what that makes us? Guilty. Makes us guilty. It means when God sees those things, he imputes those things, he puts them on our account and he says, you are guilty. And you know what Paul wrote at the end of this chapter after listing these things? He said, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What is it that we deserve? What does our righteousness deserve? Our filthy rags righteousness deserves death, not life, not heaven. What we deserve is to all stand before our God And him look at us and say, answer for your sin. That's what we deserve. Because that's the wages of sin. You say, I didn't come here for this. (laughs) I did not come here tonight so you could beat me up and tell me I'm not a good person. Do we have a good understanding of what humanity is? Of who we are? Let's talk about Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What he's explaining here is that Jesus, just like we, are made of flesh and blood, Jesus came down and was made flesh and blood. Why? Why? so he could die. Now, there's a secondary reason for that, so he could be a perfect high priest. But primarily here, he's talking about Jesus was made flesh and blood because flesh and blood can die. That's why Jesus came, to die. For what reason? To destroy the devil. Why? Because the devil holds humanity in bondage to their fear of the death that is a result of sin. And I want you to notice this word, deliver deliver. You know, I think sometimes we use the word saved and, and we use it in such a generic way we don't even think about what it means. And I'll tell you what I, what I prefer instead of the word saved. Rescue. Rescue. It means the same thing, but, but, it, but it gives you a little bit better understanding, doesn't it? Because if someone says, I'll save myself, you might think, well, you're a little bit weird. But if someone says, I rescued myself, you go, that's not a thing. <laughs> that, you, you can't rescue yourself. I mean, rescue has some implications. Rescue has, has an implication of you're in peril and you're powerless and all those things. And someone that has power comes and they rescue you. That's right. You see, again, it's not that we're pretty good and Jesus just makes us better. It's we are hopeless and in bondage, and Jesus rescues us. He rescues us from ourselves and from our sin by destroying the devil. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, For when we were still without strength, do you see that? We were powerless. We did not have the strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen to Paul's logic as he says, you know, if someone esteems someone as a good person, they might die for that person. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't die for righteous people, for good people. That's his point. Who did he die for? The ungodly. Jesus died for sinners. He didn't look down and say, man, they're good. I'm going to die for them because they're good. No, he looked down and he said, they're sinful. They're filthy. They're dirty. And I hate sin. I'm going to have to punish sin one day. I'm going to have to punish them. And that love that he had for us compelled him to come and to die for our sins. Not because we were good, but because we were not good. Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Again, going back to David's original statement, what is righteousness? Blessed is he whose sins are covered Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So how does God not impute sin? (laughs) That's what what I want to know. How does God not impute sin? He remits it through the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is the only thing that will pay for sin. It's the only price that God accepts as a payment for sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus died, he forfeited his life's blood to remove sin from our record. Peter puts it very beautifully in 1 Peter 3, and verse 18, as he says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, By the Spirit. Again, Jesus did not die to justify the just. Jesus, who is just, who knew no sin, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, died for the unjust. That's me and you. And why did he do that? To bring us to God. Can you bring yourself to God? No. Why? Because sin has separated us from God. It's brought about spiritual death. Everybody out here in this world that doesn't have the blood of Jesus is separate from God. Do you think about that? Separate from God. And it's not because we're better than them. Anybody in here that is close to God, it's not because you're better than them. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what separates us. Not that we're good or we're better, but that we have been justified by the just Savior. Isaiah 53 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. You ever just think about that statement? It pleased the Lord to bruise Jesus, to afflict Him. I believe the ESV translates this word, crushed. Him, it pleased the Lord. Does that mean that God looked down at the suffering of Jesus and said, "Oh, that makes me happy"? That's not what it means. It pleased Him. He hath put Him to grief. Who put Jesus to grief? Who's he talking about? It's about God. You shall make His soul an offering for sin. And then he talks about the resurrection. He shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Listen to verse 11. This is what it means that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He shall see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What does it mean that Jesus was made sin? It means he bore our sin. He took our sin. Upon himself, God counted our sin against Jesus so he could count Jesus' righteousness to us, a righteousness that we do not deserve. In reality, we are dirty, but God esteems us as righteous because of Jesus. You think sin's not serious? God crushed his son because of our sin. And you think he's going to give us a pass? You really think that? He's going to give us a pass? God said, I must punish sin. You ever consider how brutal the death of Jesus was? It was brutal. I get it, death for sin. But why brutal? Why did Jesus have to be beaten nearly to death with whips? Because God had to pay for every sin. That's the punishment sin demanded. And God was satisfied with that payment. He was pleased with it. Because it was God's plan all along. Notice this, what Peter says in Acts 2. He says, Him being delivered, listen, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. He said this was God's plan. This wasn't plan B. Before the foundation of the world, God knew man would sin. God knew he would have to impute that sin to him because of his justice. And God knew that the only way he could justify man was for someone else to pay for it, him himself. So God paid the debt. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You know what Peter just told them they did? He said, it was God's plan, but you killed him by wicked hands. You know what he said to them? You're guilty. And they said, what shall we do? And here's his answer. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the remission of sins. What remits our sin? The blood of Jesus. And baptism's not what remits our sin. It's when the blood remits our sin. It's when. And who said this? Peter. Peter did. You can be counted as righteous. Your sin can be forgiven. Galatians chapter three twenty six. For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on Christ. You say, Ian, that word, I I think that word up there in verse 26 is children. Actually, it's not. It's son. It's masculine. You say, well, I'm I'm a woman. I'm not a son. (laughs) No, you're a son. You say, I'm not tracking. Notice verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for y'all one in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about gender neutrality. That's also a contamination of this passage. What is he saying? Who is the heir in Israel? The Jewish free male. You know what he says? You're a free son of God. You're an heir. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're an heir. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or female, you're an heir doesn't matter whether you are a slave or free. You're an heir. Why? Because you put on the Son, and He's the heir. And you put on His Son, and now God esteems you. He counts you as what? He sees the righteousness of who? His Son. When does that happen? When we put Him on in baptism. Because we are baptized into Christ, and we wear Him, His righteousness, See, God made Him to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The only true righteousness that we have is a gift from God. As He exchanged our sin for Christ's righteousness and imputes and counts us as righteous, just as we read in Romans chapter 4. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I want to ask you tonight, if you were to stand before God right now, how would he count you? As guilty or as sinless? How would he count you? You know, we have a lot of blessings. David talks about being blessed here. We live in a very blessed land, and many of us probably are blessed with a very nice, comfortable home, with comfortable furniture, with climate control. I mean, we've got weather stripping around the doors. Some houses do, right, Jackson? Some of them have weather stripping that keep the bugs out. I mean, I mean, having a nice home, that's a good blessing. We've got cars that run and even if they're not the nicest car i've heard about the nice cars in nigeria and that's the one that'll get you about 100 yards before you have to get out and restart it we got nice cars we're blessed with that if you got a good family i'll tell you that's a tremendous blessing and i hope you never take that for granted that's a great blessing to have a good family we could go on and on maybe you got good health that's a blessing that's underappreciated right we don't know that until we lose our health a great blessing I want you to know you can have every blessing that this world offers but if you don't have the blood of Jesus you've got nothing you've got absolutely nothing because you could have none of those blessings and have the blood of Jesus and you've got everything that matters and counts because that means God sees you as righteous and heaven is your future destination do you have that blessing you can have it tonight We offer the invitation of Jesus Christ, if you're not a child of God, if you've not put on God's Son, do that tonight. We have water prepared. We have clothes that you can change into. But don't leave here guilty. Because God wants to give you righteousness, to give you eternal life, and you can have that. And he makes it very simple. Won't you take advantage of God's love and forgiveness tonight? Come have a seat on the front. Let us help you as we stand and we sing.